We'll read from 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll read verses 24 through 26, the very last three verses. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Your word can be obscure at times, and yet at other times it can be so clear that we can't believe it. We pray, Lord, that you would open our minds, open our understanding, uh, have us to take your word at its uh, face value, that we would honor you by honoring your word. We give you thanks for your kindness to us, for opening our ears to your gospel, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, do so now. Open our ears to have a greater understanding of your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Today is the first in a series of five that's planned on the five points of Calvinism. I can't assume that everybody is familiar with the roots of these five points, and so I think it's best that I share a little bit of history with you. History bores many people. I am very excited about history. I love history, but I will try to be brief for the sake of those that really don't like it nearly as much as I do. In 1603, and so 416 years ago, a man by the name of Jacob Arminius became a professor of theology at the University of Leiden in what was then known as the Dutch Republic. Now, this man had studied under John Calvin's successor in Geneva, like 25, 30 years earlier, uh, Theodore Beza. And yet, here he was, made a professor of theology at the University of Leiden, and he had serious problems with the confession and the catechism to which he had ascribed when he had become a, both a pastor and a professor. He'd already been opposing these for about 10 years. It's probably why he got the appointment at the university, because someone friendly to his views wanted him teaching students there. So he criticized the, what is called the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, and he criticized these documents primarily in the area of what we call in theology soteriology, which is the concept that we use to describe salvation. And so he had problems with how the confession and the catechism characterized election, reprobation, atonement, redemption, conversion. He had problems with all of these things. And he was teaching his views, his exceptions to his students. This caused problems, and the government and the Dutch Reformed Church, and at this time, over 400 years ago, government was usually involved in the church. This was a state church. So the government and the uh, officials of the church were attempting to resolve this quietly, peaceably. Why? Because it was a political hot potato. They had gained freedom from Spain only about 25 years earlier, and they did not want to have to deal with this again. They did not want Spain intruding. Spain, of course, was heavily Roman Catholic, and the lower parts of the Netherlands, as well as what is now known as Belgium, were basically very faithful to Roman Catholicism. And yet this Dutch Republic, which was reformed and uh, immersed in Protestant ethic, had finally separated successfully from them. So they were trying to work this out with Arminius and the various people that were trying to hold him accountable to the documents. And then he died in 1609. So he was fairly young. He was only like 48, 49 years old, but he died before he could submit a response. And his followers then did that for him. 
1610, just a few months after his death, they filed what was known as the Remonstrance. It was fairly brief. It's only five fairly brief articles of opposition to the Confession and the Catechism. Forty-six ministers signed this document, and they called themselves Arminians because they were followers of Jacob Arminius that even called themselves that during his life. A few years passed again because they were attempting still to resolve this quietly. But eventually a synod of Dort was called, and it began in November of 1618. It ran for six months. It consisted of 102 men, 84 theologians, and uh, a lot of representatives from the government. The theologians were heavily from the Dutch Republic, but they were also from Great Britain, France, Switzerland, and various German city-states. So this was a very broad representation of the Reformed community. They, like I said, they met for six months. They met 150 times, and they produced what is now known as the Canons of Dort. These were 59, and I'll just use the words affirmations and denials, because I think most of us are familiar with that from the recent Gospel Coalition work. They asserted 59 affirmations of the faith, and they gave 34 denials. And if you go to the Westminster, California website, you'll find a great article that goes into depth on this. In the 39, uh, or the 34 denials that they made, they typically would include a clause from Jacob Arminius's own writings and then refute it. Say, we disagree with it for this reason. They've already presented the positive view above in what were known as the articles. Now, the CRC and the RCA still retain the canons of Dort in their confession. The Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the canons of Dort form what is referred to nowadays as the three forms of unity. And so the Christian Reformed Church, the Reformed Church in America, they hold to these. That brings us up now to this new term, the five points of Calvinism. The canons of Dort were presented, like I said, 59 affirmations, 34 denials, but they were pre presented under four headings. They were called the headings of doctrine. And the third and fourth points of doctrine at that point were included, but they were later teased apart to create five doctrinal uh, aspects that opposed Arminianism, those came to be known as the five points of Calvinism, and then were later, much later, like in the early 1900s, simplified into the acrostic that most Reformed people know and love called TULIP. And how fitting could that be? TULIP, Holland, this is where it all began. But yet it did come much, much later. And there are two aspects of this whole kerfluffle that I really have to point out have presented Calvinism in a negative light to people nowadays. One is the fact that most people that oppose Calvinism think that there are five points to Calvinism. And of course, Calvinism, if you've ever read John Calvin's Institutes of the Cal uh, Christian Religion, which I think would be a fair summation of Calvinism, two humongous books. It covers far more than soteriology, but often you get characterized by your opponents, and that's kind of what, the way it is now. People think of Calvinism as only this aspect of salvation in which we disagree. The second is that Tulip, while a very appropriate acrostic, being that it's a tulip from Holland, the phrases themselves leave a lot to be desired when you're attempting to use the same terms with people and have them easily understand them. Let me quote from a book entitled The Joy of Calvinism. It was published about eight years ago by a man named Greg Forster. It was, I discovered it when I was reading a Ligonier article and it was referred to. The five points that we now use didn't even exist until the 20th century, but today, these five vague phrases have come to completely identify Calvinism. This has happened even though many Calvinist writers seem to agree that the five points are a lousy way to describe Calvinism. Calvinists first invoke the five points, then apologize for invoking the five points, then explain how the five points don't really mean what they seem to mean, and they aren't really saying what they seem to be saying. This can't possibly be the best way to introduce people to what we believe. 
And so it's funny, it is. And it's kind of sad, but we Calvinists are so proud of TULIP. I was tempted, and honestly, when I first came up with this idea a few weeks ago, I figured I would just stick with the five points as the titles for my messages. I've decided, though, to deviate from that, and it has to do with this. Let me give you some of the ways in which the five vague phrases are misunderstood. Total depravity. Totally depraved. This is saying that people are totally depraved. And when we think of that, we just think of rampant evil, rampant violence. And that's not what is meant by the term, but that's what people think. And so it immediately puts them off. They think we don't know what we're talking about. Unconditional election is this condition related to God, related to man, what's it related to? And these next ones are even more uh, critical. Limited atonement. How dare we say that Christ's death is in any way limited? How dare we say this? Irresistible grace. God is just a bully. If we're not allowed to resist him, if this is irresistible, if he somehow overwhelms us and overcomes us, and perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. It sounds like works righteousness. So I believe critics do have fair arguments in opposing these five vague phrases, and many Calvinists do. The Ligonier article that I referred to was written by R.C. Sproul. It's fairly brief. One article of introduction, and then he goes to five links that uh, are listed TULIP, but then in every one of the articles, he says he doesn't like using that phrase, and he substitutes another one. So let me give you what R.C. Sproul uses. In place of total depravity, radical corruption. In place of unconditional election, sovereign election. In place of limited atonement, definite atonement or definite redemption. In place of irresistible grace, effectual grace. And in place of perseverance of the saints, preservation of the saints. I must admit, I like what R.C. has done, but that does not form an acrostic. <laughs> Urs Depp. That's not good. So now, other people who want an acrostic, of course, then have introduced their own. And this one is so cute. We're all familiar with uh, the famous phrase in Shakespeare, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Well, one of the alternate acrostics is roses. And so a tulip by any other name or by the name of roses, I guess, would be better. <laughs> Radical depravity. Now, this one does not go in tulip order. It's not T-U-L-I-P. It's T-I-U-P-L. Radical depravity, overcoming grace, sovereign election, eternal life, singular redemption. Again, not bad terms relative to what they want to point out. This author that I'd quoted earlier that had these amusing uh, things to say about the five vague phrases, he suggests this one. Whoopsie. W-U-P-S-I. Wholly defiled, unconditional choice, personal salvation, supernatural transformation, in faith, perseverance. The last one is kind of odd, but that's whoopsie. I doubt any of these will catch on anytime soon. I think we're all going to pretty much stick with TULIP because we like it, and we Reformed people are used to being in a minority anyway. We're used to being hated, so what does it matter? <laughs> but I have made some small concession to the criticism that was made of TULIP, and I changed the names of my messages. So let me share with you the names. The t today's message you can see if you have a handout and the bulletin, Enslaved by Satan. And so the T is Enslaved by Satan. The U is Chosen by Father. The L is Saved by Son. The I is Regenerated by Spirit. And the P is Preserved by God. Does anybody need me to repeat those? I forget if they're on your handout that you need to fill out. Is, are they written there? Okay, good. I have it, but it's in the back page. Okay, so those are the five messages, and you can see that each of the points is kind of expanded to include a broader subject matter, and so I hope that we will get to a little bit broader topic than we might otherwise cover. I want to give you a warning, though. I've been a Christian for a long, long time, uh, 38 years. I've been Reformed 37 years, 
And yet early on, I had so many discussions, heated discussions. Some would call them arguments. But with my Armenian friends, and I so wanted to convince them and it's of what seemed totally obvious to me from the word, and I was very frustrated with the fact that I could not convince them. And I just want to warn you that I don't believe there is any matter that you can pull from the Bible or from reason that would convince your Armenian friends that have been entrenched in that position for a long time. But the text that I shared at the beginning is our hope, and we'll get back to that later. But first, the Armenians' definition or concepts of God, sin, human freedom, fairness, they're all different from yours and ours. And so when they hear us present this material, they get angry. I remember long ago listening to a radio message by Chuck Swindoll. I was in the Southern California at the time. I don't know that he was as famous as he later became, but he was a very popular uh, lead pastor at the EV Free Church in Fullerton, where uh, Tabitha and I uh, pretty much lived and, and worked. And uh, I was listening to a message, and he cited Jeremiah 13, 23. Now, this is the, the verse that talks about can the Ethiopian change his skin or can the leopard change his spots? And then the very next phrase that many people don't think about is this. Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. That's what it means. Even now, that phrase has entered popular culture, and that's what it means. It means no. It's a rhetorical question, a, a colorful way of saying no. You can't change your nature. Well, I listened to Chuck Swindoll present that verse, and I thought, whoa, where is he going? And he then went on to essentially deny it, to say that that's exactly what we do. We change our spots. We change our skin color. God has given us that capability. Isn't it wonderful? And I lost a lot of respect for Chuck Swindoll that day because he did not do justice to the verse. He did justice to his preconceived notion as to what he'd prefer that verse would say. Another man, very popular man, a few years ago I was at the Half Price Bookstore, my favorite place, at the bargain shelf, kind of the only place I go anymore. Two bucks, any book you want. I found a book by a very famous Christian author by the name of Max Lucado. And I had never read anything by him. And I thought, well, why is he so popular? So I pulled this book down, thinking I would certainly get it. It's two bucks. And I'm flipping through it. And I find where he is being critical of the Reformed faith. And I mean, I was shocked. He, he, is, he is like steam is coming out of his ears. So I thought, OK, I'm not going to buy this book or pretty much any book by Max Lucado moving, uh, moving forward. But then. Even worse, because I'd never read anything by him before that. No loss. But then about a year ago, I was reading a book by a hero of the faith, Ray Comfort. And he presented a book on the Beatles. I don't know if anybody's read that book. He's written about the Beatles. But you get to the end, and he shares this little appendix on how to share the gospel. And one of the first things he does there is lamb-based Calvinist views of sharing the gospel. And he, again, seemed to me it was steam coming out of his ears. And so I really like Ray Comfort. He's still a hero of the faith. I still admire the man very much for what he does, especially in opposing abortion and in evangelizing, trying to shock people out of their lethargy in this country. But I just can't accept his Arminian hardness. He, he is so angry at those of us who hold the views that we do uh, of the Reformed faith. It is not a live and let live with some of these guys. They would really rather we walked off a cliff or something. I want to read to you a quote from the introductory essay to the death of death and the death of Christ. Anybody familiar with that book? I mean, that's a pretty cool book name. The death of death and the death of Christ. I didn't see a lot of hands up. Gary's, Robert's, Phil's. But if you haven't read that book or the introductory essay written by J.I. Packer, I really encourage you to. This is what he wrote. This is what uh, G.I. Packer wrote in the introduction. Arminianism represents a characteristic perversion of biblical teaching by the fallen mind of man, who even in salvation 
cannot bear to renounce the delusion of being master of his fate and captain of his soul. As long as the fallen mind is what it is, the Arminian way of thinking will continue. G.I. Packer wrote this in 1959 before he mellowed out quite a bit later. I think he'd have probably revised this if he had written it uh, in the 80s or 90s. I want to quote from another G.I. Packer book. This is Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and this was written in 1961. I do not intend to spend any time at all proving to you the general truth that God is sovereign in his world. There is no need. For I know that if you are a Christian, you believe that already. How do I know that? Because I know that if you are a Christian, you pray. And the recognition of God's sovereignty is the basis of your prayers. On our feet, we may have arguments about it, but on our knees, we are all in agreement. And so I mentioned at the start of this little diatribe against Arminianism that don't set your expectations too high. I would also urge you to do this. Be very kind with these people. Because on their knees, they know the Lord is sovereign, and they pray to him as a sovereign Lord. For the most part, Phil told me about an exception, where when a man was praying and he was mentioning God's inability to do what God wanted to do, Phil started sliding away from him, thinking he was going to get struck by lightning. So we can't say that all Arminians on their knees are in league with God's sovereignty, but I think we believe that most are. That's the saving grace. When on our knees, we're all, we're all Calvinists. We're all believers in the sovereignty of our Lord. Now, today's message is entitled Enslaved by Satan, and I want to give you a brief explanation as to why I chose that. I could have chosen dead in sin, dead to God, man's moral inability. There were a lot of things I could have chosen, but when I labeled ULIP, and if you look at it, chosen by Father, saved by Son, regenerated by Spirit, preserved by God. You see that there are these action words followed by the prepositional phrase with the actor and we that are being acted upon. You can read in there, fallen man, enslaved by Satan, fallen man, chosen by Father. So I wanted to show the actor upon humanity in that statement. And so Satan is the actor. He acts upon us in this present age, and we'll talk about that in great detail later. In Calvin's Institutes, he, I like the way he quotes Augustine. He'll just say, somewhere Augustine said this. He said, somewhere Augustine compares man's will to a horse awaiting its rider's command, and God and the devil to its riders. Let me repeat that. Augustine compares man's will to a horse awaiting its rider's command and God and the devil to its riders. All humans have riders. The unregenerate's rider is Satan. The regenerate rider is God. That's the way we were made. We humans have been in that state since the fall. I want to make three axioms that... I want to, I believe is a good reflection of Calvinism, and I hope to prove through the verses that we'll share. First, man, fallen man, is in bondage to Satan from birth, from conception. Fallen man is in bondage to God from rebirth. Now, listen closely to this sentence. Man has a free will but man's will is not free, not fallen man. So now let's finally get to our text. First, let's define total depravity, and I'll just define it with a paragraph from John Piper. He has an article on his Desiring God website called What We Believe About the Five Points of Calvinism, and I think it's a good definition of total depravity. Our sinful corruption is so deep and so strong as to make us slaves of sin and morally unable to overcome our own rebellion and blindness. This inability to save ourselves is total. We are utterly dependent on God's grace to overcome our rebellion, give us eyes to see, and effectively draw us to the Savior. So the premise is this. Man 
is unable to come to God unless God works a change in him. Now, the title of the message is Enslaved by Satan, and there are four truths that I'll draw scriptures in, all of which support total depravity, and yet I believe we can easily sort them into four different categories. The first that I'll cover is fallen man is enslaved to Satan. The second is fallen man is dead in sin. The third is fallen man is only evil continually. And the fourth is fallen man is unable to come to God. So those are the four statements. Fallen man is enslaved to Satan. Fallen man is dead in sin. Fallen man is only evil continually. Fallen man is unable to come to God. I believe I have six verses to share with you concerning fallen man being enslaved to Satan. And I'll try to read them in total. You don't have to turn there. I'm not going to. I have nearly all of it written in the sermon. If God, perhaps, this is from 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 25, what our text is today. If God, perhaps, will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. You can see the string that connects these things here. Repentance leads to truth, which leads to awareness, which leads to escape. Escape from Satan, and yet the repentance originates with God. And these things connect one another together. If perhaps... The man of God must be patient with people if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Does fallen man know or accept that he is in captivity? No. He thinks he's free. Many creatures in captivity probably don't know they are. They think they're free. It's what they've always known. But they're in captivity. And they really don't recognize they're in captivity until God opens their eyes to it. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 2. Now, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 was an alternate I was going to have for this. I mean, it's just such a beautiful depiction of many of the facets of Reformed soteriology. And we'll likely hit it a lot over the next a uh, few weeks. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That is the life that fallen man has. It's not life at all. It's death. God describes it as death being dead. But it is alive to Satan and to his power. This works in fallen man, this power. John 8, verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Desires speaks to will. Jesus is rebuking those in authority, in religious authority in Jerusalem, and he tells them, you are of your father the devil, the desires of your father you want to do. Why? Because they're in captivity to do Satan's will. 1 John 5, 19. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now, this is 1 John. This is long after Christ's death. And so there is still this impact of Satan. Even though Christ defeated Satan on the cross, we know that the playing out of that is still going on. We're still eliminating the influence of Satan's rule on this earth, and it will continue until the end of time when death dies, the death of death and the death of Christ. The devil has great power on the earth still. If you remember, I think it's Phil's uh, favorite hymn, that Martin Luther hymn, the devil still has great power on this earth. John 12, verse 31 now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Christ refers to Satan as the ruler 
of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And if we are, if fallen man is in captivity to Satan, he will not allow that to occur. The devil has the power to blind all of the perishing to the truth of the gospel. Let me encapsulate two of what I've referenced, the first and the last. 2 Timothy 2 teaches that fallen man is enslaved by Satan to do the will of Satan. 2 Corinthians 4 says that the minds of the perishing are blinded by Satan lest they come to faith. Satan would not willingly allow his slaves' minds to be opened. Jesus, when casting out demons, told them that the strong man must be bound to allow Christ to do what he was doing. And so that's what Christ was doing. He was binding Satan's hands and then freeing people from demonic control. An outside force acting upon someone who is under the control of Satan. Jesus is that stronger man. Now our next truth, number two, is that fallen man is dead in sin. And I have five verses to share. Colossians 2, verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses, he has made alive. Unbelievers were dead in the trespasses, Jesus gave them life. Ephesians 2, 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So again, it's just a, it's not a, it's not a cause and effect here. They're just stating two truths before and after. But Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive. So see, that verse connects them. We are dead, and we're made alive by God. It, there is nothing that is in between those two. Dead people cannot make decisions to follow Jesus. And again, they're not dead physically, right? They're dead spiritually, though. They're dead to God. They're alive to Satan, but they're dead to God. So they must be granted spiritual life first. Then they can see to choose the good. That's what our, our text tells us. There is a remarkable vision that Ezekiel has in Ezekiel 37. It's the dry bones. I remember still, I remember still reading this as a young Christian, not knowing anything about the Bible, not really having been in church much. I'm just voraciously consuming the Bible because I'd been saved recently. And I came across this story. And so I'll start at verse 5. First, he takes Ezekiel and he sees these, this field of dry bones. He said, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now, you might think that this is only referring to physical resurrection and a restoration of life, but if you turn back to chapter 36 and read, starting at verse 26, you'll read this. This is God's promise. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is a prophecy concerning the coming of Christ, concerning the future where God's temple will be in man. And then he gives this vision of the dry bones to show that it's all of God's doing. 
Those dead bones didn't have anything to do with being made a body and being made aware of the need of life. The heart of stone was their heart of unbelief. They needed a heart of flesh that opened them up to God's Spirit. In John 3, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus. We have that beautiful John 3.16 that everybody on earth knows. And yet, they don't know the rest of the story in John 3. In verse 8, Jesus said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Listen to what Jesus told Nicodemus. The wind blows where it wishes. Not where you wish, where it wishes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So that was fallen man is dead in sin. The third point is fallen man is only evil continually. Genesis 6.5 says, Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6.5 is right in the story of Noah. And this is what is said of mankind. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, I don't know about you, but I have seen books that portrayed the evil in Noah's day as being pretty close to what you might imagine total depravity is like if you had it misunderstood and that men were behaving as depraved as they possibly could all of the time. But I don't really think that's true. Noah and his sons spelt, spent a hundred years building that ark. If men were behaving as depraved as they possibly could, how many times would they have destroyed or at least attempted to destroy Noah, his sons, and their ark? Mocking them would not nearly have been enough. So see, we are enculturated to believe that those people that existed in Noah's day were much, much, much worse than us. But they weren't. They were just like us. But they were not elect. Noah and his sons were. They were preserved. Psalm 10 verse 4 says, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Romans 14.23 says this, and this is important, whatever is not from faith is sin. So you see, when you're dealing with an unbeliever, you're dealing with someone who has no faith. Therefore, everything they do is sinful. Even if, from a worldly perspective, a human perspective, what they're doing might be wonderful. Albert Schweitzer feeding, feeding people in India who are starving to death. How can that be bad? But it is, because it's not done in service to God. Anything not done of faith is sin. No exceptions. And so an unbeliever existing in a faithless existence, cannot please God, and everything they do, everything they do is evil. I know it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this because we are accustomed to thinking of good in terms of relativity. I'm better than you, Brian, or, and Kit's much better than you, Brian. <laughs> Isn't that how we think? We think like this. We have this scale of good and evil, and we're always just good enough and there are other people below us, but we're kind of the cutoff. Everybody above us, well, you know, they're just, they're just, mm -mm. you know what that is, right? Okay. Genesis 8.21, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Job 14.4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? This is very similar to Jeremiah 13.23. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? What does Job say? No one. No one. Examples of clean things from our perspective would be faith, belief, repentance. These things do not originate in sinful man. They cannot originate in sinful man. 
And then I read to you Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. They cannot. The Ethiopian cannot change his skin color. The leopard cannot change his spots. We cannot do good who are accustomed to do evil. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Romans 1, 21. All of us are probably very familiar with Romans 1. It tells a very sad tale of life on earth amongst the fallen. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. All of these fallen people that I'm referring to, some of which, frankly, might be in our midst, know there is a God, but they live in denial of him. They can live in denial of him in the midst of Christian churches. It's sad, but it's the truth. Ephesians 2.3, we were by nature children of wrath just as the others. And so all of us from the sin and the fall in the garden on were by nature at conception children of wrath. Now the last truth, the fourth truth, is that fallen man is unable, and I would add unwilling, to come to God. Now, before I read these verses, and I'll kind of read a lot of them to you without much commentary, but I want you to listen for the all-encompassing words, those total words, such as cannot, no one, not able. Matthew 7, 18. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. John 5, 40. Jesus saying this. No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. John 8, 43. You are not able to listen to my word. John 8, 47. You do not hear because you are not of God. You do not believe, Jesus says in John 10, 26, because you are not of my sheep. The sheep will believe. They come to faith because they're sheep. They're not made sheep. They were sheep, and they come to faith. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned, and his spirit to God is dead. There is no spirit there relative to God. His spirit is open only to Satan. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But Arminians insist that a decision to come to the Lord must come from their fallen mind, or it would be God imposing his will on them. So from a Calvinist perspective, from a scriptural perspective, there's really only two choices. Arminianism consistently leads to universalism, and it often has. Because if Christ died for all, therefore all sin is covered, therefore all must be saved. Man's will cannot trump that. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is from John 6.44. And you're probably familiar with this whole text. From this point on through the end of uh, chapter 6 of John, it's just amazing. It's the Father who initiates the saving relationship. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then later in verses 61 to 65, let me, let me turn there and read that. This is John 6. John 6, starting at verse 61. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he had said that you must eat my flesh. He said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they, would, who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, 
Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Jesus drove them away. I don't know how Arminians can read this chapter and hold to their views because this goes against everything they do in our world. They would never drive anybody away. Y'all come. When I was a kid, I'm glad Phil told that story at the beginning about tearing apart the clock because I was actually going to use a, si a similar uh, illustration at this point. And it just came to me uh, earlier before I heard the clock story. When I was a kid, and actually the other night, uh, Friday night, who is it that brought the cool magnets, the square magnets that all stack together and connect together? Who brought those? Anybody brought those? Yeah, there we go. I love those magnets. Those magnets are so... I don't own any. I think I stole some of yours that night, though. But uh, I'm just kidding. I loved magnets as a kid, and I would tear stuff apart to find magnets because you kind of realize that magnets are in things after a while. And it's like, whoa, you know, a prize. So it's like ripping open a cereal box and finding the prize. And so typically, if something broke then, I would rip it apart looking for the magnets because those are the treasures. They were like finding gold in that cereal box for a kid. So you would take these magnets, and the thing about magnets is that when you reverse their polarity or when you get the same polarity and you're trying to press them together, you cannot get them to touch, not if they're strong enough magnets. And doesn't that frustrate you? It frustrated me to no end. I wanted them to touch. And so I would brace myself and take the magnets and smash them together, but I could never get them to touch, not the big strong ones. And the little ones, when you get them to touch, it's like, oh, well, that's no fun. You know, I'm strong enough to hold them together. This is not fun anymore. But when they are stronger than me, ah, oh, it's just this incredible game. So see, that is the way our world works. We have the unregenerate. We have the regenerate. We have those that cannot see beyond this world because Satan has blinded them to be able to see God. The God that they know exists. It's amazing. It's a riddle. And yet, sin is that destructive, is that possessive of us. If it were up to us, no one would embrace the gospel. No one would turn to Christ. And in hell, those that in hell do not regret not having chosen the Lord, we sometimes think that way. No, they don't want to be with God. They set their life in opposition to Him from conception. And they could not of themselves pull away unless God granted them grace to see the situation. The natural man does not receive, cannot know the things of God. The natural man cannot come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. God reveals his sovereignty repeatedly in Scripture. Yet, we can be blind to it. Even believers can be blind to God's sovereignty. Our sinful pride, our twisted perceptions, our false understanding of what and how this world works, they all hinder our understanding. Don't allow yourself, though, to become proud that you are a Calvinist. It is ironic that that is a path that we travel through, that we became proud of this. It's almost like secret knowledge that we have. And we want to share it with people, and we're frustrated that we can't, that they won't believe. A pox on your house. I mean, that's how we feel when we're walking away from some of these discussions with Arminians. But yet, that's not the right attitude. The right attitude is what I read at the very beginning. It is our text, because I want you to listen to this. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. I believe this is referring to an unregenerate person. But that same tactic... That same gentleness and patience and ability to teach 
can be used to woo our brethren to us if they don't just regard us as hateful, uh, crazy Calvinists because their knowledge of us in that regard makes them see red at times, just like I mentioned with those men earlier. So see, don't allow yourself to become proud. Calvinists, of all people, need to take Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 4 seriously. Let me, let me read that to you. It's just such a beautiful warning to us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4. Now, my Bible has this uh, title, Stewards of the Mysteries of God. So in 1 Corinthians 4, we see that we are these stewards of the mysteries of God. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. God has privileged, in my opinion, I mean, from a Calvinist Reformed perspective, it is such a tremendous privilege. The second point of the counter-remonstrance, the remonstrance had five points. The Arminians, the Arminians. They did not mention infants dying. But in the very second point of the counter-remonstrance, they only made seven of them, but the very second point, they expressed, and, and I'll get to this in a later sermon, but the Arminians faced great difficulty with the death of the young, with the mechanism that they insist in reading into Scripture about how choice is made. But yet, we in the covenant, understanding that election is of God's choosing, and it, at the top of your handout, if you're looking at it, I, I drew you that timeline that shows unconditional election is the very first thing. It is be, before time began. That's when that occurred. So we rest in the knowledge that Chloe, because she's in the covenant, is with God. We are comfortable with that knowledge. And yet, the Arminian can only artificially produce such confidence. Their theology doesn't guarantee that, and they have to make leaps of logic in order to attempt to comfort people with that. We need not. The Bible is clear in that it's God's choice, and we rest in that knowledge. So, going forward, let's exercise gentleness, patience, humility with our Arminian friends. And if they are now our enemies, let's make them our friends if possible. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made us stewards of the mystery of your word. Lord, we do not seek to go farther than you have revealed, and yet we must go to the extent that you have revealed. And so we thank you, Father. We thank you for your truth. Your word is truth. We thank you for the gift of your spirit, for the gift of salvation, for having awakened us from the captivity that we were held by. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.